Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Well, Jim, Curtis, it's uh, another week and another opportunity to do a podcast here on The Nuclear View, and this week we've had a lot of discussion in the press about Russia's decision to, or Vladimir Putin's decision to have a a missile test launch on the anniversary of the sinking of its uh, flagship by presumably the Ukrainians. And then of course, the North Koreans were engaging in missile tests. So we've seen quite a bit of missile testing. They are more than just phallic symbols. They actually have (laughs) utility and are great vehicles for communicating your displeasure, your threats. And so gentlemen, what say you about this you know, this new birth of missile testing by the Russians and the North Koreans. Yeah, um, Adam, uh, thank you for the introduction and uh, and starting this topic off. And uh, I think it's I, I think it's an interesting topic. In fact, uh, uh, I won't be shy about it. We all try to choose topics here. And I chose this topic because I was uh, I was looking through the news when I saw this art, this specific article uh, about North Korea, uh, let's think. Uh, I don't even remember where it was. I think it was in Newsmax, and um, and I saw it and thought, "Wow, how many different people are talking about missiles right now?" As the world becomes more and more dangerous, we're seeing more and more uptick in discussions about missiles. And you may recall, or our audience may have heard, and if they haven't, they can go back to the nuclear knowledge. Um, let's see, it was episode five. Uh, Bill Murphy, one of our senior fellows, discussed the triad. And one of the key points in that nuclear knowledge was that the missiles play an enormous role in our nuclear deterrence because it provides a, a second strike capability, but also it provides some ambiguity as to survivability in terms of how we can launch a, a strike against many other other sites, uh, uh, if nuclear weapons are used against this. So, so that, you know, I always thought, wow, that's, that's a U.S. view. But now we're looking here at what people are responding to when they feel threatened. And of course, uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, out of the gun here on this anniversary, starts showing his capability of launching ICBMs um, and uh, providing their uh, capability as a threat in the in the region of Ukraine, but also the the, the bigger Baltic region uh, itself. And so uh, I said, well, you know, that's really interesting that Vladimir Putin's doing this. He's been doing it all along. But all of a sudden, you see now that China, although they're doing some work, they uh, in, are, are doing some threaten uh, threatening around Taiwan. Uh, they began to up their ante by doing uh, conducting uh, anti-missile uh, uh, strategies with actually missile intercept strategies uh, in 
China and begun to develop that technology and advertise it, they have that ability. What what a, a enormous change in just two weeks to say we have this ability. And then the U.S. with South Korea says, well, oh, wait a minute, before I get there, then North Korea, of course, they launch a solid rocket uh, missile, important with a solid rocket versus a, a liquid rocket. It's a low it's low technology, but also it has a very, very, you know, has a very, very long range at a very high velocity. So these are missiles that get off the ground and get out very quickly as a threat in a multi-stage uh, rocket capability. And so those threats all grew in the matter, at least in the news, in a matter of a few, few days, everyone's talking missiles. And so I think it's important for us as an organization to say, how does that affect deterrence? One is our deterrent with the triad. And the other piece is sort of the unsettling view of Vladimir Putin uh, with his missiles, because there's another, if you will, nuclear threat with those missiles. And then China saying, well, we have missiles that can counter your missiles. Where does that deterrent fall? And so I thought that was the exciting first step. So that was me out of the chute, Adam. Um, and, and for our audience to sort of lay, lay the basis for this. And so I, I thought I'd let you two uh, comment and I'll just jump in as well. Now, Curtis, do you think that, so when, for example, uh, the Russian, you know, Eastern, Far Eastern fleet engaged in these nuclear drills and, you know, there was launching, you know, uh, missiles and defending against missiles. It was sort of a, a much larger exercise. They were hunting submarines. You know, it was a big production to, you know, simulate the nuclear conflict and just a naval exercise, you know, it was a large scale naval exercise to hunt American nuclear submarines, you know, theoretically, if they're, if they're there. Do you think that that was a show for the United States as an effort to, you know, somehow deter us from action in the Ukraine, further support from the Ukraine? Was it geared towards, because, you know, this, in in this area, the, there's a territorial dispute between the Russians and the Japanese over the Kuril Islands. Was it geared towards the Japanese now, we always know that the North Korean efforts are geared towards us. So when they do, you know, ICBM launches, you know, these tests, they're they're usually geared toward us, but they, they concern the Japanese and the South Koreans as well. So for this naval exercise specifically, what was its purpose? Was it just to do it on the anniversary of the sinking of the Moskva? And therefore, to demonstrate that, hey, we're still we're here, we're powerful, get used to it. Or, you know, what, what was the purpose? So thanks, Adam. Uh, you know, I think it's an interesting question. The answer to your question is, yes, they are trying to deter us through d- demonstration. Right. And this is tech. This is uh, this is um, classic. Uh, Russian and Chinese active deterrence measures by doing these sorts of things. But I think they're also doing two other things, uh, not just deterring us showing that, uh, you know, that they can do these things, but it is secondly to show that they can do this stuff while they're fighting a major war, a major land war in the Ukraine. So that's a different kind of message. It's a, look, I can walk and chew gum at the same time. 
And then the third reason they're doing it is they are trying to audition for their new friends, the Chinese, to show that they are capable allies in this new no limits love affair uh, between Beijing and Moscow. And so, uh, so I think these exercises are threefold and they're to remind us that we think our stuff works. You should be deterred. We can do all these things while taking massive casualties um, and consuming large amounts of conventional um, weapons in the Ukraine. And um, we are going to learn how to work closely with our with our new allies, just like you do with yours, uh, which shows that they are trying to be a first world uh, 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 coordinated military. And so I think that is 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 very important. And I also want to add to Jim's observation uh, on the North Korean launch with a solid fuel system. Now, I'm not the science guy. I'm not the engineering geek. I am not going to explain technically why that matters. As a strategist type of guy, I'm going to say why that matters is, is that think about how, how much uh, North Korea has come in such a short amount of time being constrained by the world that they're on the verge of the solid fuel capability, which will help them put those in those weapons in submarines. It will make their weapons easier to hide more mobile, harder for us to target and uh, will, uh, will increase their reliability and thus their ability to deter the United States from getting involved in any potential conflict on the Korean peninsula. So they are actively deterring and they are working. And every time they fail, they learn and they get better. And I'm not going to tell you that everything we see on TV is real uh, and, and, and so forth. But I'm, I, we, would, we should never dismiss the capability or possible capability of our adversaries. I think that's folly. Yeah, Curtis, I, I appreciate it, that, that last piece that we're seeing the increase in North Korea's capabilities stepwise working within the parameters that are, you know, because of their government system, because of the way they operate, you know, their GDP is small, the, et cetera, et cetera. You know, in, in many of the way, same ways. And I, I once heard, you know, a Adam Lowther, you know, talking about, you know, Vladimir Putin here, he has a GDP so small that, you know, can't, it, it's like the size of Texas, I believe yep. was your, your comment, Adam. And the point of that is even with that, he can threaten the world with his nuclear weapons because they have, they have figured a way to ensure that that part gets a priority. And it looks like North Korea is doing the same thing and they're doing it with missile technology, which allows them to reach out and touch the world in very, very interesting ways. And that's the sort of frightening part. At one time, North Korea, you know, it's North Korea and, you know, not that it's not as good, North Korea, South Korea, Japan, you know, that region and China sort of held them back. But now that's not happening. And that is, you're starting to see that grow more and more. And to me, that becomes quite destabilizing. And it, and, and when you add into that, and that's why I said these three things sort of went together, um, and then you see China saying, well, we can block, uh, we can block, or uh, we, we think we can block, we can stop and intercept your missiles incoming. That becomes an interesting situation for us. 
And so that's the question about the destabilization. I was curious, um, you know, your take on that from a stabilization, destabilization standpoint. Yeah, I mean, there's to me, there's a few sort of interesting points here in the in both the Russian case where the Russians, you know, are particularly concerned, you know, especially if you think about the, you know, the release of uh, classified documents that happened here lately that very, you know, I haven't seen any of the documents, but the, the news stories have said that, you know, they, the Russians are not particularly capable anymore, that they've suffered serious losses and then come, you know, Putin comes along and he demonstrates that it, the Far East fleet can engage in ASW, can engage in defensive from rocket and missile attacks, you know, can engage in nuclear operations. And, you know, so I, I wonder how, you know, Putin is really trying to signal the West in particular that, that they are still a, you know, a viable threat that has the ability to get underway and operate. And then for North Korea, you know, North Korea in the matter of a decade, decade and a half has gone, has essentially the five generations of missile design that that took us, you know, 60 plus years to, to go through. They've done it in, in about a decade. And so it's been really quite interesting to see how a country of 25 million starving North Koreans have been able to build such a capable, you know, a purely authoritarian totalitarian regime can build that kind of advanced capability that rapidly. You know, it's pretty interesting. And if you compare it to, you know, there's a very famous, book uh and i'm i'm drawing a blank in it but it's about the pakistani uh development of their nuclear weapons program it's something about you know about eating grass grass. yeah Uh, but you know this basically saying hey we're going to do whatever it takes to build this program if we have to eat grass then that's you know that's what we'll do and the north koreans have have literally done that and they are putting themselves in a position with with these test launches that the United States has to move out of any perspective that says, Hey, if we have to, we can, we can take out the North Korean nuclear arsenal. We're rapidly getting to a point where that's just not a feasibility. And so therefore we, it has to change our relationship with North Korea dramatically. Yeah. Adam, uh, what was interesting also is this, uh, another article that came out from, uh, I think it was first post, I believe that talked about U.S. showing some air drills with South Korea and uh, using B-52 bombers and, you know, uh, and uh, South Korean, I believe they were fighters, uh, accompanying them. And my point is that in some ways you can look at the response maybe uh, in the same way as I was talking about Taiwan connecting back to India and building for, forming closer ties. You know, the U.S., South Korea, we've always been close, but exercising these kind of drills in response, I think are you know, might be waking people up to the idea that we have, you know, we're, we're building those relationships stronger. We're working together uh, more closely. And obviously South Korea has, you know, the, the, the concern with a you know nuclear armed North Korea 
um, you know, right, right across the border there. So I think that becomes another uh, interesting response. Um, I'm my, my question is from a deterrent standpoint, do, do these really bring in the fear that we expect from North Korea when they see the, the B-52s and the fighters, you know, traveling up toward the, the DMZ in these fairly, um, fairly visible, uh, fairly open uh, you know, drills that, that North Korea can follow? I'll I'll confess I'm at this point I'm somewhat skeptical because we've done this a number of times right so they you know if you think back I, I I'll never forget I was at the DMZ and it was the first or second time I had been there and I was doing the tour and you know there's a there's a spot you go to along the DMZ where you see where uh, North Koreans came across the bridge and. You know, some Americans were cutting down a tree to improve visibility and the North Koreans like hacked one of the Americans to death with the axe. And what did we do? Nothing. And then ultimately what I found out was that there had been more than a hundred of these sort of small ish kinds of acts that where the, the North Koreans had done something, whether it was the, you know, the bombing of Waipido Island or the sinking of the Chonan or, you know, they had, they had, there was a range of provocative acts and by and large, we had never responded in kind. And so therefore at some point, I wonder if the North Koreans, you know, they're testing for the sake of building a capability that can deter and defeat the United States. And then we come in to say, well, we're going to fly B-52s across the, across the peninsula. I don't know that it does anything anymore. You don't have credibility if when they kill your people, you, you, you know, you basically do nothing. The, you know, you bomb Waipido Island and then you do nothing. And this isn't necessarily because the South Koreans are unwilling to do anything. The South Koreans want to retaliate. It's the United States that is restraining itself and the South Koreans from retaliation. But when you, when you say that, Adam, I'm just curious, because I've heard this argument before I've been in Korea twice and I've actually seen these, these areas. Um, I mean, when you say retaliate, um, you certainly can't retaliate in kind, you know, we're not going to send someone across the bridge and, and go ax murder somebody. That's not the U S way. Uh, so these threats by the, by very visible means by our B 52s seem to be the only tool in a tool chest, unless you start pulling money away, that's helping to feed people or you begin to, you know, uh, put international pressure, which doesn't seem to really be a response, uh, get much of a response from North Korea. So, you know, I, I always think of this in terms of deterrence. How do you deter those kind of actions that will lead us to, you know, to a war? That's, I, 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 I'm not, you know, I want to sharpshoot this because I don't know what that action is. Well, I, I'll say this, that, uh, you know, we have to do more than send a strongly worded protest letter, Right. Uh, and, and that's essentially what this routine has become, I think, to Adam's point, uh, to take away from the valiant efforts of our aviators who fly bombers. But the, the act of flying conventional bombers around the DMZ, all that serves to do is, in the minds of KJU, 
and his advisors is to reiterate that the Americans are there to wage war on them, right? And to, uh, and that war is conventional war and that we are too afraid. Uh, we lack the credibility in their minds to go nuclear. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so we go to great lengths to ignore murders, to ignore theft, right? $1.2 billion worth of cryptocurrency theft in last year alone, I think was the number I saw in North Korea. Um, uh, and, and we, we, we spend billions of dollars developing a ground-based ballistic missile defense system, um, to, uh, to ensure deterrence against the North Korean missile threat. And it is already now that has been said that they now have more missiles than we do interceptors, uh, per se. And, uh, and therefore they've already offense always overwhelms defense when it comes to this long range nuclear capability. When the, when the North Koreans figure out how MERV technology works, this multiple independent reentry vehicle, uh, that will be another game changing moment and that we will ignore again. Um, as uh, as a strategy, uh, because we feel that that is more stabilizing, this idea of accommodation um, to the Korean uh, uh, threat uh, as being a more stabilizing method is only serving to allow the the beast to grow to the point where we're either a going to be forced to deal with a much bigger, more powerful beast, or b be forced to accommodate this powerful and, and, and at some point appease uh, when they can bargain from a point of strength. And we're allowing that to happen as time progresses in the interest of st- short-term stability. We see this in Iran as well uh, as, we, as we work through there. And so it's unfortunate, uh, but we allow these problems to fester and then it becomes a bigger, bigger problem uh, that we have to then lance. So it seems what you're saying, if I understood you properly, is that Douglas MacArthur was right. We should have (laughs) nuked the Yalu and then killed all of the Chinese and North Korean soldiers and just won the war. We should have just won the war. We had a plan for it. MacArthur was right. Use a few nukes and it'll be okay. That's what I understood you to say. Did I get that right? So that is not what I said, and I, huh. I'm not going to huh. claim that. Look, I have a personal, I have a personal love for the Yalu River. It was my great 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 grandfather Philo Norton McGiffin who fought the Battle of the Yalu River uh, in the in the uh, war between the Koreans and the Japanese, uh, and um, uh, he fought for the Chinese, and uh, he was a viceroy in the Chinese uh, uh, Admiralty, and. Um, uh, so clearly the Yalu River is a special place. But what I'm saying is, is that we have to, we have to understand that our adversaries message differently than we do. And they see our messages differently than we think we're projecting them. It's about as clear as little old me can make it. And I think we don't, we, we just don't do a very good job of sort of, of sort of shaking things up, right? We keep going to the same playbook that we have for decades. They know this playbook and they're not afraid of it anymore. There's no fear factor in any of this. And so um, now if you float um, and uh, you know, a, a, a ship with a bunch of nuclear armed slick amends that we don't have, 
um, and hold at risk the peninsula just to remind them that we have this ability and don't screw around with us. Um, that's a different deterrence message. One that we have not sent that I can recall in recent history. Yeah, that's a, that's a good, that's a good option. And I agree. We need, we need to look at other options because the direction we're taking and going back to your comment about the ICBM development and technology development, we're not, we're not thwarting them and maybe not even slowing them down much. And so our activities have to be somewhat different. Our messaging, um, our resolve, although I will say we are resolved by doing operations with South Korea is a good piece of this. It does show that we are with them, but it doesn't seem to change if we do the same thing every time. But I do, I, I do question what it is that we can do. Um, we, well, we've been doing it because we've deterred war for many, many years. Mm -hmm. So something's happening that's deterring an activity and the question is, does that need to change? That's the real issue, Adam. You're going to respond. Well, so I, you know, in regards to the the Russian naval sort of simulations, you know, all that. That's you know, that's you know, we we engage in large scale naval exercises in the Pacific. So you know that that is what it is. You know, the the date of it, you know, was was more than just a coincidence. It was done for purpose on a specific date. Otherwise, it's by and large no big deal. But what I think about in regards to the North Koreans that I've wondered and I've never gotten a good answer to, and that is the question of when North Korea launches a missile test and they often, although not always, go over the Japanese islands, why do we not shoot them down? That's right. Shoot one, shoot one down. I mean, I, I'm not a I'm not a legal scholar, uh, so I don't know if there's some international legal reason why we don't do it. But what is the reason we don't shoot at least one of them down to demonstrate that we can, and to demonstrate that we will? I got an answer for you, Adam, and my and Jim's not going to like it because what if it fails? What if we don't shoot it down? What if we what miss? happens to our credibility and our capability and the deterrent born of that suspected credibility, right? Strategic ambiguity works both ways in this regard. And so I think that one reason why, you know, you, you'll find a bunch of politicos out there that will cite some sort of international law that says we can't do it, but it's okay if we just forgive their sovereignty violation by shooting over uh, weapons over the Japanese islands. Uh, but I think, I think the big one is, is that we, what if it doesn't work? And, and that's a, that's a big challenge. Uh, strategic. Yeah. I, yeah I, that's an interesting, that's an interesting piece, Curtis. You know, it certainly was not a direction I would go because technology always works, you know, for <laughs> always, me. Um, always. Yeah. So get on board. Um, but um, you know, every action. So we go back to you know, your fundamental deterrence one Oh one and that is that you have to devise your strategy, but every action has a risk and a benefit and you have to weigh the risk and the benefit. The problem is it's sort of like, a, I, I, I think of it as a, as a, a, a boat in the water that has a small leak 
and you just start taking a water you say well i can't jump into the water and close a leak from outside i'm just going to keep paling from inside but after the while the boat's mostly full of water now it's too late to get out and get the get, fix the hole in the boat because it's too full inside you have to determine when that action is going to take place it's not just an action has to take place but you have to determine strategically when you're going to do it and what you're going to do as you say when the risk of in fail, a failure. And I think that risk of failure is fairly low in Petrosky's opinion that it would fail, but you can't be fully risk averse in any scientific endeavor that kills any innovation and it kills any opportunity. And so um, what ends up happening is you get caught doing, as Adam said earlier, the same thing over and over again. And it's not, does not seem to be working and the world's becoming more and more dangerous and eventually someone's going to give it a try. You've lost that fear. Mm -hmm. And so I, uh, I agree there, there are other options to be made shooting down. I'm just glad you guys went that direction. That was, that would have been, you know, I'm, I'm a get ugly early person. So, <laughs> you know, as you can tell if you see me on video, but anyway, um, I'm a get ugly early person. And that, uh, you know, if you get ugly early, at least everyone knows the length at which you'll go, but there is the fear, the risk, of not you said uh, shooting and missing, but the other one is in shooting and hitting and escalating. That's another piece, Correct. and that is a risk. That's right. Every opportunity is every action has a risk. It must be weighed out, and the strategy has to have a second, a backup action. What if it escalates? What is the next step? What is the next step? But you can walk those through. It's why we do a lot of these tabletop exercises and see what happens and see how people how people operate. So we can take a guess, at least a guess as to what the action will be, but your adversary is never going to react the way you want them to, because if they react the way you want them to, then they wouldn't do anything in the first place. Right. Cause there'd be no risk. Well, that's the challenge of <laughs> deterrence is that our adversaries are not always predictable. Uh, and that's why deterrence can't be easy. I'll say though, that we have solved the North Korean missile launch problem uh, at one point, and that was under the Trump administration when they decided to negotiate to enter into some sort of, and a relationship was built. Um, and while the president was maligned for it, um, there was upwards of over a year that there wasn't a single ballistic missile test that occurred. Um, and, uh, and so they weren't learning, they weren't expanding. Uh, and uh, in that sense, um, and, um, and there was some hope that maybe we could have a, now I think to, to the idea that you're going to denuke the peninsula is a little bit of a far reach. Uh, that's probably not going to happen. Uh, maybe renuke it like uh, we had done in uh, the past. No, that's another or, option. Right? Or uh, what you could do is you could have Kim Jong-un invite a television, you know, personality to Pyongyang to conduct an interview of him and then or a basketball star and then train him to be a super secret killer who then is going to assassinate Kim Jong Un. Wait a minute. That movie a, got Sony in trouble. Let's not. Oh, wait a second. Oh, yeah. oh, sorry. That was, I thought that was an idea I had. Never mind. Never mind. That was a, that was a movie. No. No, but Curtis, I, I do I do agree there's there's a point of diplomacy that also plays right. a role here that doesn't seem to be working right. 
in in uh, in building a relationship, so we can at least make some predictions as to what the adversary may make. Let, let me just let me uh, take a moment here and say that we often want to think that since we're on the North Korean kick now, as we're wrapping things up, that Kim Jong-un is an irrational thinker and he's not. Uh, no, he's, he's not. He's rational. He's very, very rational because he's calculating. And Now, he may be unreasonable in our sense. We may see him as unreasonable, but he's not irrational. And so he wants something. He has a grievance about something. And for whatever it's worth, the previous administration took a few minutes to try to understand what that grievance was. They may not have agreed with that grievance, but at least they took a chance and and KJU had an opportunity, an audience to be heard. And the, the, the payback was some peace. And as soon as uh, the, the, the Biden administration comes into power, sort of we go back to the old playbook of ostracizing and so forth, and then what is KJUE acts out and um, and now we've got constant missile launches and look at how much he's accomplished in the last two years with uh, with the development of some people say now small tactical nukes, solid fuel, a cruise missile, a purported hypersonic missile. I doubt that, um, but all kinds of, of, of different capabilities. And look, you can choose to disregard all of the that, but but you can't ignore that there is an ambition that is um, uh, that is asymmetric to the country's need for security. And we're not asking the right questions anymore, at least, as to what that grievance is. Uh, you know, it would seem to me that we would want to figure out a way to address that grievance and figure it out. I suspect that grievance is they think that we're going to that we want to invade them. Well, let's have that conversation. I think the reunification of the Korean Peninsula is not up to America. It's up to the Koreans on both sides of the DMZ. They're the ones that need to make that decision. And and my sense is, is after the lessons learned of the German reunification, I'm not so sure the ROC is really interested in reunification. I think it's very expensive. And uh, that might not be something they're, absolutely, they're necessarily interested. They want relations. They want to help. I don't know that. This, this may be... This may be a job for Team America, World Police. I mean, it really may be. That's me. Don't sing the song. I'm lonely. No, 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 no. Uh, but I, I, I want to go back to where I was because I just looked up. Yes, it was General Austin on episode nine of the Nuclear yes. View, and he spoke of because I because I questioned him as to the value of treaties because. Uh, the value of treaties. And I said, it seems like diplomacy is a no winning game and his comment, and it fits the Curtis here. And then we'll wrap this up, Adam. And that was that the value in building the treaties and the value of the diplomacy is you get an inside view of the way that your adversary will respond to various concepts that you throw at them. And that can be used as a deterrent. And I agree with that. And I was not on board at that time. I just thought that that was a waste of time. So, but you've matured. You've evolved. I have evolved my thinking because <laughs> of you, Curtis, oh, and no. maybe because of Adam, uh, but definitely have evolved. Oh. All right. And even as technical guy, can I still don't know how international to politics. Adam, so, uh, uh, yeah. You still get that one. <laughs> okay. Well, good. Well, I'll, I'll turn it back to Adam to close us out because it looks like we're out of time. We are, we are, we are out of time as always. You know, we, we have 
lots to discuss and lots to debate. So it's always good that we have this opportunity. So we, of course, want to thank you, the listeners, because without you, uh, we wouldn't be doing this. So thank you for listening. And as we say every single week, without fail, think deterrence.